I'm Naira. I'm Ellie. I'm Nina. I'm Joanna. This is Politics Under the Microscope, where we explore issues that matter to you by connecting science, policy, and society. How do we know what color is in style? Maybe we see the colors currently in season on TikTok, Instagram, or in shop windows while running errands. But for some countries like China, locals know which color that's currently in style by the color of their river, which can vary from magenta to red to blue to inky black. In China, about 70% of the rivers and lakes are contaminated with 2.5 billion gallons of wastewater from the textile industry. Worldwide, 20% of water pollution is attributable to the fashion industry. But it's not just water that's polluted. The average garment in our closet is worn 7 to 10 times only before ending up in the landfill, where it takes several generations to fully decompose, a process that produces methane, a greenhouse gas that contributes to air pollution. This is part of the environmental cost of fast fashion, a growing segment of the fashion industry that is becoming increasingly unsustainable. In our previous episode, we discussed fast fashion at the macromolecular level, specifically how clothing used to be primarily composed of natural fibers, like cotton, wool, and silk, but this has now shifted to polyester, rayon, and nylon. These synthetic, man-made fibers are cheaper and easier to make, yet contain carcinogenic microplastics and take significantly longer to decompose. Natural fibers are renewable because they are naturally occurring, while synthetic fibers are not renewable. Although there are drawbacks to using natural fibers, such as high water usage and soil erosion caused during cotton cultivation, natural fibers seem to be more sustainable than synthetic fibers. But how do we make fashion more sustainable? The problem is that under the current system, it's not very profitable. Sustainability is often seen as an obstacle towards profitability, at least in the eyes of companies and the fashion industry as a whole. We are joined today by the former COO of Timberland and expert in sustainable investing and environmental social governance, or ESG, Ken Pucker. Ken lends both an industry and investing-oriented perspective to better understand the problems with fixing the fast fashion crisis and discuss possible solutions. But what is Ken's story? How did he get from working in finance to becoming COO of Timberland to where he is now? And importantly, when did he first notice the discussion about sustainability hit the fashion industry? I started out working in finance at Goldman Sachs for a couple of years. I really loved it. So I decided I'd get an MBA. And while, and I thought I'd go back to Goldman, but while uh, at MIT, I entered a contest to travel to Japan and Korea. I was selected with about 15 other classmates. And the purpose of the trip was to learn about just-in-time manufacturing and how Japan and Korea were taking so much share from the U.S. And so we toured factories, uh, Toyota, Pusan Steel, Samsung, Sony, um, and it was wild. And I was so turned on by uh, factories and making stuff and by um, the process that the Japanese and Koreans were leveraging. And I didn't understand why we couldn't do that in this country. And so when I came back, I switched over for my second year to study more operations and strategy. So I went and worked in a factory in Lexington from a big multinational called Varian Associates. Uh, it was a factory that made industrial products. And I did that for a couple of years and I realized, well, you have to be an engineer to be successful here. And I'm not an engineer and ended up transferring over to go work at Timberland in 1992. And I went there not because of fashion. And you would know that if you could see me through the podcast. But I went there um, because it made stuff. Timberland made, at the time, all of its footwear in the United States and Dominican Republic. It had four factories at the time. 
and the company was growing very fast and I liked the product. Um, and so I went to work there and I was very fortunate. I uh, got to a company that was deeply rich in values that matched my own, that was growing fast. And so I got to do all these things that one shouldn't be able to do based on their resume as chief operating officer, working with the third generation of the family that led the company. Um, I graduated in 2007, spent a year overseas. And since then, I've really been working across a portfolio of activities at the intersection of the environment and capitalism and trying to figure out why it's not working and what needs to be done to fix it. When did I notice sustainability hitting fashion? Um, well, let me tell you about the divide that went on in terms of responsibilities when I was at Timberland. For the last seven years, the CEO was uh, passionate and faith-based and committed to a sustainability agenda way before most companies. And so Timberland was one of the first public companies in the world to issue a CSR report in 2001. A CSR report standing for Corporate Social Responsibility. Timberland installed one of the largest solar arrays in the state of California at the time of our distribution center. We were the first public company to pay for employees to do 40 hours of community service. I could go on. That was all his domain. I obviously was supportive and I worked on it, but he kind of left me home to make sure that we, as a traditional company, delivered on metrics that investors cared about. And so I started to notice this agenda right around the year 2000. Um, I think that's when the industry started to notice, at least progressive companies. Um, and things accelerated after the awful factory collapse in Bangladesh around 2012, 2013. Here, Ken is referencing the tragic collapse of the Rana Plaza factory building in Bangladesh. Stay tuned for our next episode where we delve deep into this preventable tragedy that killed thousands of people. One more note is this hit the fashion industry even a little bit earlier than I said. Nike's supply chain labor problems in Indonesia and Vietnam preceded this time period. They were in the, the mid to late 90s. And so I guess that's really when the conversation began. But what does this have to do with fast fashion? Sustainability is an answer to the fast fashion crisis. But were there specific events that signaled the shift towards fast fashion, like how synthetic fibers started being used instead of natural fibers, as we discussed in our previous episode? Here's his perspective, which includes Zara, a popular fast fashion brand, as a case study. Isn't it interesting that the acceleration of fast fashion coincides with the discussion of sustainability? And when I first started to pay attention was looking at Zara's success and how they constructed a supply chain that enabled small batch production and speed. Um, it was very concentrated around Europe so that they could be more responsive. They had a, a control center that looked like NASA, you know, to invest in IT to make this happen. Um, and they were the ones who I think really perfected a cycle that looks like this in the fashion industry. If you start by committing to innovation and newness, uh, add in cheap labor, uh, invest in technology, you get planned obsolescence, which leads to more stuff. Um, and so Zara's cycle went from traditional, which was probably 18 months in terms of design development, to probably something like three months at the beginning. It's faster now. Um, and because they were able to limit markdowns, because they use small batch production and were so responsive, 
they could make stuff very inexpensively and very quickly. And people saw their success and have emulated it and have even sped it up some. This rapid turnover is really what defines fast fashion. From a turnover of 18 months to three months is very, very fast, revolutionary even. We may think three months is fast, but it's now down to one week thanks to ultra-fast fashion online retailers like Shein and Fashion Nova. This also explains why polyester is so popular, because polyester is cheaper and readily available compared to natural fibers. Together, this ultimately increases efficiency, profitability, and creates transient temporary trends, which altogether leads to more purchases and a higher turnover because things go in and out of style so quickly. So therein lies the profitability of fast fashion, a huge hurdle for sustainability advocacy. But surely there are companies that are making an effort to be truly sustainable, and also investors who want to make the conscious choice of investing in sustainable companies, right? What does CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, look like in today's industry? What about ESG? Corporate Social Responsibility is what I was talking about in the beginning, uh, and Timberland CSR report, and funding um, projects in renewable energy, or giving employees time off, those kind of things are all, I would say, under the umbrella of corporate responsibility or purpose or corporate social responsibility. The word sustainability has been co-opted. Sustainability means living in harmony with the planet, both this generation and next. And so it's really tough to find examples of companies that actually measure themselves looking at if they're truly sustainable. To do that, you have to measure yourself against planetary boundaries. There are people who do it. There's a great organization called R3.0 that's leading the measurement in this space, but it's a very small group of companies that actually think about legitimate sustainability. What about ESG? Well, ESG actually is a term, came out of a UN conference in 2004. Uh, it was uh, a conference that resulted from uh, a plea by Kofi Annan in 1999 to get business more involved in solving growing social and environmental problems. Kofi Annan being the former Secretary General of the UN. And ESG as a term in the report, which was called Who Cares Wins, was left undefined. But it was created by the investment industry and it was, uh, it was about using, leveraging non-financial results, things like you were talking about the environment or diversity, et cetera, to improve the risk profile of a company, make it more valuable. The, ter it, the, the trend has become very popular, as you mentioned, in the investment world, ESG has. That didn't start until really 2016, 2017, but it exploded you know, in the last couple of years. So what is ESG investing? Well, ESG investing is understanding the impact on the, of the planet on the company. So, there's the biggest rating firm for ESGs called MSCI. 70% uh, of investors use MSCI ratings. And what they do is they look at changes that are happening in the 21st century. And they map those concerns, many, many factors to companies and rate them. Are there factories in floodplains? You know, do they have a history of um, sexual harassment lawsuits? Do they have appropriate governance with independent directors? All these kinds of things. And then they provide a rating, which is really either could be thought of as a proxy for management or as a way to think about risk. And I think it's a good thing for investors to think about risk and to think about newly developing risks that are non-financial, at least non-financial at the start. However, 
That is not corporate responsibility, nor is it sustainability. ESG ratings are the impact of the planet on the company. CSR reports on company on planet. A lot of people hope that ESG investment will do two things. One, better align their investments with their values, and two, deliver excess returns, known as alpha. But it's difficult to measure impact. It's difficult to know whether ESG investing and CSR are actually making a tangible difference. Ken describes the problems with ESG ratings here. And so what ESG funds do is they invest in highly rated MSCI companies, and that can range from um, Meta or Unilever to Chevron and Exxon. And so a lot of people are confused when they see the contents, if they look, of their ESG fund to note that Exxon or Chevron's a top 10 holding. And it's because ratings are done by industry, not on an absolute basis. So an A means you're best in the space, in the industry, not your best across companies. This means that a company like Exxon, which we know has an overall detrimental impact on the planet, can rate well when compared to its contemporaries in oil and gas, like Chevron, for example, but would fare poorly in terms of greenhouse gas emissions when compared to other companies outside of this realm or outside of this category. Therefore, it can be difficult to know which companies are truly sustainable and those that have a truly positive impact on the planet. What about investing? Is there a way for investors and funds to operate in a way that considers the effects on the environment? How can investors make a difference with their money? So the first way they can do it is invest in impact funds, not in ESG funds. Funds that have an explicit mandate to improve social or environmental outcomes. Not all investors have access to these, but that's the place that I would invest if I wanted to see my money go towards social or environmental change. There are other opportunities for individuals or institutions to invest in climate tech, which is a category, eight categories of investment, battery storage, transportation, ag tech, renewable energy that is growing rapidly around the world. Um, and so I think those investments have a, will have a profound impact on our future. The third area isn't, isn't really for individuals, it's more for institutions, which is blended finance. It's NGOs and governments backing investments in typically less developed countries to invite private capital to support transformation. Um, and there's good examples of that now in places like Vietnam. So that covers ESG funds and, like Ken said, preferably impact funds. But what about corporate responsibility, or CSR? Ken describes the current problems and potential solutions. So the first thing we need to change is that uh, corporate responsibility information needs to be standardized, it needs to be mandatory, and it needs to be audited to have any merit. At present, in the U.S., it's none of those three things. And so companies can report every two years if they want, not every year. So how do you make a comparison as an investor or as a consumer? You can't. And so the average consumer is trying to decide between a wool shirt and a nylon shirt. They can't understand all this stuff. It's not fair to ask a consumer to. So these, these information, these data need to be uh, standardized and um, audited and reported annually. But is reporting enough? Is it enough to have the data and the evidence to make a change? Ken argues that this is not the case. There's a big difference between reporting and disclosure and another difference between disclosure and change. 
So just because companies start reporting, let's say accurately, let's say annually, let's say audited, that doesn't mean that something's going to change. I'll give you an example. There is a piece of legislation in the U.S. that came out after the market crash in 2008-2009 called Sarbanes-Oxley. And as part of the Sarbanes-Oxley bill, public companies above a certain threshold had to report on the ratio of CEO pay to average worker pay. Because the theory of change was it's getting so obscene that if the CEOs have to tell us, you know, how much they're making, it's, by the way, now 330 times more on average in the U.S. than the average worker. If they had to tell you that, then this would stop. You know, there'd be less inflation of CEO pay. Guess what? Since the reporting's happened, it's only gotten larger. And so reporting itself won't change much. Okay, what we need is legislation, policy to lift the floor. The vast majority of companies won't on their own. And we've seen that. Um, and there's real pressures for companies to grow. And there's real costs associated with um, doing the right thing for the planet and for your workers. And so I, I'm a big believer we need policy. So from Kent's perspective, industry cannot make sufficient change on its own. Enter policy and legislative action. These are really the solutions we need to manage the fast fashion crisis. We ask him about the headwinds of change, where he explains the major structural problems facing the fashion industry. So the headwinds are large and strong <laughs> um, and structural. Okay, the, the, the big problem is that our system is currently constructed and structured invites and incents executives and leaders to both grow and grow profit. Um, growth is kind of the oxygen of capitalism. And so think about it this way. If you were a CEO and you got on a phone call every 90 days, for the, if you're a public company, it's what you do. And let's say you reported uh, to your investors and said, hey, I have great news. We shrunk by 10% this year, but we were able to reduce our carbon footprint and our water usage by 25%. So we improved the intensity of our use of environmental resources. How do you think investors would react? The stock would go down, okay? Especially if it was versus expectation that they would grow. Um, and so the rewards are connected to growth and profit. And so the actors, meaning executives in this case, are acting in a way that's consistent with how the structure set up of the system. And if you want the system to change, you have to change the structure or the rules. And rules is another proxy for rules is policy. But I do not believe on their own, consumers, executives, or investors will change. I don't think, I hope I'm wrong, by the way. I really hope I'm wrong. I hope that consumers wake up and say, you know, I don't need 17 blouses in different colors uh, and different 25 pairs of shoes in my closet and another $6 halter top from Shein. You know, um, in the, by the way, in the, in the U.S. right now, the average consumer buys something, a fashion garment every week. Average consumer, not the hyper one. In order to have a sustainable planet, think about this, average consumer can buy about five garments in a year. So if consumers are going to lead this change, wow, do we need a change in zeitgeist, right? Now it's possible. And the reason I think it's possible is because of attitudes on gay marriage. You know, 
I think you at your age will be blown away to know that Obama, when he ran for president, was anti-gay marriage. Okay? I mean, now, I was at a Red Sox game recently, and a, a woman proposed to her girlfriend, and the whole place got up and clapped. Now, maybe it wasn't the whole place. Maybe there are a few people that were bummed out. But, you know, the zeitgeist changed, you know, I think. Maybe it's because I live in a liberal community. Um, but I don't count on that. And I don't know how to predict that. And I don't think investors are incented to satisfy the needs of our planet, evidence the conversation about ESG. They're trained to make money. And it's their fiduciary responsibility. What I say is when people expect ESG to work, I say, um, when you have an electrician come to your house to fix the wiring, do you expect them to cook you a gourmet meal? Now, it's possible they can. It is possible, but it's wildly unlikely because that's not what they're trained to do. And that's not why you call them. And that's expecting investors to save the planet. Um, and so we're left with companies themselves. And so we'll have great companies that are committed to this agenda, but not everyone, not most. And so we need policy. Interestingly, Ken has actually worked on policy since leaving Timberland. We will dive deep into fast fashion-related policy in our next episode, but one bill Ken specifically worked on is the New York Fashion Act, a state-level legislative proposal. He describes the policy here. So this piece of legislation is called the New York Fashion Act, and it's part of a trend globally, really more in Europe than the U.S., but globally, to try to begin to address these challenges with policy. The French, for example, are very advanced here. They just passed a bill requiring truth in labeling and anti-greenwashing. They have extended producer responsibility legislation, which means the companies responsible for returns of the garment uh, in order to potentially upcycle it. Um, California just passed legislation to eliminate PFAS chemicals. I mean, so around the world, there's starting to be activity here. The New York Fashion Act is different. Um, it requires a number of things. For any company with revenues in excess of $100 million that chooses to trade in the state of New York, they have to do due diligence on their factories and present risks in keeping with OECD standards. They have to report on a whole bunch of things, including the average worker pay in their factories versus living wage, percentage of recycled material, amount of water used, etc. And they have to comply with um, an NGO uh, that's called the Science-Based Targets Initiative. And the Science-Based Target Initiative says that you have to reduce emissions, carbon emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, consistent with planetary boundaries, which means at present, you have to, re you have to reduce absolute emissions by 4.2% per year. And that's absolute. That means if you grow 20%, you still have to reduce your emissions 4%. But does this bill have teeth? Is it meaningful and something that will enact real change? If you don't do this stuff, it's not uh, a slap on the back and said, thanks for trying, because that won't get it done. But if you don't do this and you don't remediate over a period of time where you're granted for remediation, then there's a 2% revenue fine that can be imposed by the New York Attorney General. And that's 2% of global revenue. So it's significant. If you're a $100 million company, it's a $2 million fine. Most of the industry is opposed. Um, and so we will have an uphill battle. But like we mentioned, this bill is based in New York. 
it's not at the federal level. Why New York? Ken lists several reasons here, economical and political. It's the fashion capital of the U.S., and it's a big enough market that most brands can't afford not to sell it. And it has Democratic leadership in both houses in the Assembly and a Democratic governor. We asked him which part of the bill he feels most strongly about. The part I feel most strongly about is compliance with science-based targets, because uh, most brands that make progress report on abs- I mean, report on emissions intensity improvements, which means I improved my carbon emissions by 10% per unit. But if I grew units 30%, my, my emissions still went way up. But because there aren't standards, you can report on just emissions intensity, not absolute emissions. Science-based targets is focused on absolute emissions. And it's one of the few initiatives that is built to be consistent with planetary boundaries. However, all policies and bills require support to change the current state of affairs. This raises the importance of voting and ensuring that our voices are heard as citizens, not just consumers. We asked Ken what we as consumers can do. Activism, citizenship, make your voice heard, vote. Um, Ultimately, don't think of ourselves as consumers, think of ourselves as citizens. And unless we demand a safe future, it's unlikely that politicians will sign up to it. The reason is because of incentives. Think about it. If you're elected to the House of Representatives, you have a two-year term. And from the minute you're elected, you start raising money for your next election. Um, And legislation that you're going to come back to your district and tout has to make people's lives better and typically has to make them better now. We want instant gratification. And so why spend time lobbying on something that's going to benefit your grandchildren? Right? Not because people are bad people, but because the system set up such that they got to, you know, work on the present. And so unless citizens demand um, that their rulemakers change their um, uh, focus, um, I don't think we'll make enough progress. From our discussion with Ken, while it's clear that industry, investing, and consumerism can all contribute to different aspects of the problem, it ultimately comes down to legislation, policy, and laws to make a difference. However, we hope the next time you are shopping online or in store for something trendy or in style you saw on TikTok or Instagram, we ask that you think about the cost beyond that price tag, because it turns out that it's extremely high. In our next episode, we will cover the fast fashion-related laws, policy proposals, and legislative approaches in-depth with fashion lawyer and fashion law expert Whitney McGuire.